Hi, this is Joel Selvin, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast, with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart, weekly music news for the new music business. From Patrick Clifton, he breaks down his story, The Record Label Crisis. From the Wall Street Journal, Spotify dominates audio streaming, but where are the profits? And for Bloomberg, the music industry needs a new growth story. Hmm. All right, hmm. Jay, we've uh, it's a rainy day in Southern California. <laughs> we've got a lot of stuff to cover. So I say we start covering it right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air. 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 Standing by. Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. And now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay Gilbert, it is good to see you, brother, on a lovely, what is for us, a Saturday morning, typically when we record. Yeah, it's raining outside. I like it. I like it too. And boy, we've uh, it's going to be an exciting week. We're going to both be at NAM this week and uh we've just got a ton of stories to cover. And and it's been shifting, it's been moving. A lot of stuff is uh has come into uh, under our radar and boy, we've just got a ton of stuff to chat about. Oh, so much good stuff this week. Uh so let's let's dive right in. One of uh one of the conversations I had this week, which was so cool, as you just mentioned in the intro, was with Patrick Clifton. And he wrote that piece that we covered called the record label crisis. Mm-hmm. And I had a chance to uh, talk to him about it and it was awesome. So let's listen in. Patrick, thanks for joining me today. Good to see you. Yeah. Good to see you too. Um, tell me about your article, the record label crisis. We've been talking about it a lot lately, specifically how labels currently need to look at developing and breaking artists versus how it was typically done before we move from this ownership to access. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Uh, And if you want to read the article, uh, if you go to my Medium blog, um, Tunes and Tales, uh, you'll be able to read it in full there. Um, Yeah, so look, the premise of my article is is pretty simple. Um, The recording music business shifted from a transactional model to a subscription model at some point in the last decade. Um, But record label culture hasn't caught up. And this is the, the real reason why there's a perceived crisis in how we're uh, developing and breaking new talent. So if we rewind 15 years to when music was consumed through the purchase of CDs and downloads, um, then at that point, the industry was very focused on 
promoting new music. And the way they brought this music to the public was through what I describe in my article as a funnel. So a bunch of new signings would go into the top. These would then be presented to media gatekeepers. So in the UK, where I live, uh, that would be Radio 1 producers or journalists at the NME. Um, and then these gatekeepers would decide what to support and what to ignore. And based on their coverage or their support, um, retail would stock these records um, on their limited shelf space. And the ones that sold would then get prioritized by record labels for more investment. Um, so there was a tightly controlled, predictable development value chain uh, to kind of get all businessy about it. <laughs> um, and one of these fe features of this value chain was the more top, uh, more artists you put in at the top of the funnel, the more chance you had of a hit. So labels were incentivized to sign a lot of artists. And as an aside, like one question I pose in the article is whether this is why major label groups are structured to have multiple labels uh, often competing to, to sign new artists. And maybe this is uh, like being a tactic to maximize the funnel's inputs. Um, now then I, I took a look at IFPI data and what I could see was that actually it wasn't until around 2018 um, that physical music uh, made up less than 50% of total revenues. So it's kind of no surprise that people in the business would have maintained this sort of transactional mindset um, until quite recently, uh, even though as music consumers, you and I, you know, we know that streaming was fairly ubiquitous by 2018. And what's different about streaming compared to the old world of uh, physical music retail is obviously there's 100% selection. So when you go to your, you know, Tower Records store 20 years ago, um, retail availability was limited to the amount of shelf space there was in the shop. But as soon as music is uploaded to a streaming service, it's immediately available. So the funnel has now turned into a bucket. Um, and so now we've got the bucket with like millions of tracks swimming around at the bottom trying to get heard. But the anecdotal evidence suggests that labels are still signing a large amount of artists as if that old paradigm persists. Um, even though like putting more music into the bucket means more competition for all the other music in there. So it's really tough for these new signings to emerge. Uh, and then to add to that, you have to factor in um, another difference between the old and the new world, and that's the availability of catalogue. So in the old world, catalogue was like a corner of the record store and it was sold cheaply and profitably, but it never really got in the way of new music. In, in fact, what you do, you discover a band um, and then, you know, you might go and buy their catalogue in the back of the store. Um, now it's it, unfortunately in no one's economic interest, either the major record labels or the streaming services to prioritize new music over the greatest hits of some of the most famous artists in music history. Um, and the, you know, the persistence of that is often culturally entrenched. So it's top of the mind for streamers uh, to return to when looking when looking uh, for music to play. That is, you know, these, these kind of old classics. And so new artists are competing with old music as well as other new artists, making it even tougher to break. Um, and then, you know, we have the competition in the so-called attention economy, where we're competing with Netflix and whatever else uh, for our time. Uh, and also, I think, certainly in the UK, 
you know, popular music just doesn't have the same cultural cachet it once did. So it's taking just a lot longer for artists to achieve meaningful success. Um, and just to, just to sort of end my, my rather lengthy answer, I tend to be agnostic about these kind of developments. But, you know, as a music fan, I love Madonna, but I want my kids to have their own Madonna. Um, and I think that's the problem. Like, we need to be bringing through new artists for younger generations, uh, you know, to enjoy. Uh, one friend of mine speculated that we'll all be watching avatars of dead artists soon enough. Uh, and I'm not really keen for that world to exist. <laughs> so I think we should just jamming up the DSPs with so much music. Yeah, you talk about fans. Um, fans are no longer content to simply be passive music consumers. Um, talk a little bit about that shift. Yeah, sure. I, I think, you know, the, the signs of hope um, uh, and there are pockets of success happening. There are bands breaking through, um, going through like their own unconventional route to success um, and potentially measuring their success in different ways. Um, and it, it seems that the old way of doing things where labels, you know, decide what's going to be a priority and then like force that through the promotional value chain doesn't work. And as someone who works at DSP, you know, it used to be on the receiving end of some of that, that pressure. So uh, I know it did happen and probably still does, but I think now fans are increasingly like at the center of the artist growth journey. Um, they, they're using social media and social networks to connect with each other, to form communities around new artists and new music. Um, and they're powering like word of mouth on steroids um, through those those tools and those those media uh, to build popularity and engagement. Um, and I think what's also interesting is, you know, this is a generation of consumers who are really focused on authenticity and honesty from uh, in all their economic relationships with brands and so forth. Uh, and I think that feeds through to how they connect with music and, and musicians now. Yeah, 100%. At the end of the article, you offer up some potential solutions, including reevaluating KPIs. Uh, I'm seeing a move from simple social footprint and streaming data, for example, to really looking at the audience and real engagement uh, talk a little bit about some of your potential solutions. Yeah, uh, well, I think KPIs is, is probably the most important thing that we have to move on if we want to kind of improve the world that we're we're in and and you know bring this paradigm shift, like bring culture up to the level of technology and this shift in how we're doing things. Um, because you know, as as individuals who work in any industry like we like to work towards goals and those goals are measured through through metrics and through kpis increasingly uh in the world that we live in and so how 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 we set those shapes like how we behave as music industry personnel um and like thinking through that that that's actually going to be a topic of probably my next article um because i think it is so important um you know i think one area is just like revenue you know we're very focused on streams. We're focused on competitive numbers around chart units, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but actually there's, there are so many different aspects to uh, an artist's output as a, as, uh, as a musical artist um, from, you know, live ticket sales to merch sales um, with recording music only being one part of that. And it feels like maybe 
um, we should be increasingly focused on um, what's the total revenue that an artist is generating in any time period. And then how does that boil down uh, to fans, um, either an average level and then also obviously segmenting those fans into different, uh, potentially different buckets. Um, I think the others are in audience engagement. Um, you know, rather than saying, oh, it's great, we've got two million Instagram followers. Like how many how many real Instagram followers have you got? How many Instagram followers have you got who actually engage with you, um, who 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 uh, like or share or do any of the other kind of engagement actions? How active is your audience? Um, and I think that's th th those are probably areas to focus on. I think what's going to be really interesting for me is that probably isn't a super metric, right? And I think everyone will be like, what is the super metric? You know, is it revenue divided by engaged audience, whatever? There probably isn't one. And I think taking a look at how tech firms look at their own businesses is probably quite instructive where there's a dashboard with a number of different measures of success, you know, work coming from someone who worked at a streaming service, like we had acquisition metrics, retention me metrics. Those retention metrics were really complex and, uh, and multifaceted and, you know, focused on, you know, the length of a listening session, the amount of times uh, a user would come in any month, all of those things. And so um, I think that's probably going to be a better approach. But then when you think about that, wow, if there isn't a super metric, how does the industry like measure itself against other parts of the industry oh does that mean we're not going to have a chart anymore you know and you know i think the chart is is like you know there's a lot of obviously uh conversation around the chart in the us at the moment i think in the uk you know what does it really mean this chart you know we had a band called shed seven who are like by anyone's measure you know great great band but you know that's a heritage band a number one album and are we really saying that Shed Seven is the most popular music artist in the UK today? I, I don't really think so. So what does that mean for us? What does the chart mean? Do consumers care about it? And 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 maybe you know, may, maybe we find some different way to measure our competitive success uh, in this industry. I don't know. Yeah. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. <clears throat> I got to say, one of the best things about doing this podcast, Jay, is that we not only do we get to talk about stories that are fascinating and interesting, written by very, very knowledgeable people, but oftentimes we get to swing back around and hear from them directly, or we've established relationships with a lot of these wonderful writers. And that was great. That was yeah. really interesting. Yeah. And hopefully we'll have some more conversations with uh, Patrick Clifton. Uh, Patrick, thanks so much. Uh, for that. Um, a few notes before we get into our, uh, our stories. There was a piece this week uh, that Murray Stassen wrote for Music Business Worldwide, and the headline was, Taylor Swift's music is streamed more in the U.S. than the entire jazz and classical genres. Ouch. Wow. Yeah, and, and he, I'll just touch on it just really quickly. You know, Taylor Swift obviously had a significant impact on popular culture in 2023. In December... Uh, last month, Polestar reported that Taylor Swift had this record-breaking eras tour, and it had become the first tour in history to generate over a billion dollars in gross revenue. 
Right. So earlier this month, Swift's The Era's Tour concert film was confirmed by uh, AMC Theaters to have become the highest grossing theatrical release of all time among both concert (laughs) films and documentaries, generating more than, get this, $261.6 million in box office (laughs) revenue globally. Wow. So you got over a billion on the tour, over $261 million. And so far, you know, on, yes. on the movie, Taylor Swift was also last year's most streamed artist globally on Spotify, achieving more than 26 billion global global streams on that platform. Meanwhile, uh, over in the world's largest re, uh, recorded music market, which is the U.S., Taylor Swift's music was responsible for one in every 78 on-demand audio streams. It's incredible. Man. Unbelievable. Uh, If Swift were a record label, which by owning her own recorded music copyrights post the big machine era, she kind of is, uh, that one in 78 stat would equate to her claiming a U.S. market share of audio streams of 1.28% in 2023. That's just by herself. That's a bigger audio streaming market share than both the entire jazz, as you mentioned, which is only 0.8% and classical 0.9% genres, according According to Luminate data, as well as the entire children's genre, which is 1.1 percent. Wow! Wow! When you when you hear it like that, it's it's really impressive. There was a really cool kind of counter to that. It's great hearing about Taylor Swift and all of this. I mean, it's 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 fine. But Bruce Houghton wrote a piece in in Hypebot, and I loved the headline. It was "Forget Taylor Swift." These are the stats that will shape 2024 for 99 percent of musicians. So Bruce combed through the year-end Luminate report that we've been talking about, and he he wanted to find the data that matters uh, to the rest of the music ecosystem, and here's sort of what he found. Right. So the first one is there's more competition than ever. An average of 103 uh, and a half thousand new ISRCs were delivered to DSPs daily in 2023. That's up 10.8% from 2022, uh, when an average of 93.4 thousand were uploaded daily. Total on-demand song streams, we're talking audio and video, totaled 7.1 trillion, and that's up (laughs) almost uh, 34% compared to 2022. But the jump is not only about TikTok reels and shorts. On-demand audio-only streams were up 22.3%. So we're talking 436,000 tracks were uh, were streamed 1 million or more times globally. And that's up from 373.5 thousand in 2022. But interestingly enough, 45.6 million tracks had zero streams. Yeah, that was a big headline. And and it's it's crazy because you would think that like if you and I recorded a song and put it up, you know, SoundCloud, YouTube, wherever through through a distributor, wouldn't we want to play it to make sure it sounded good yes, or share it with friends or like zero streams? That's that's yeah. crazy. The next it one is. was he said that fans still buy physical music. Amen, right? Direct to fan mm-hmm. sales of vinyl and CDs both grew in 2023. CD sales hit 3.9 million units. That's up from 3.5 million the year before. So, you know, uh, CDs aren't dead. Vinyl certainly isn't dead. It's growing like crazy. Um, and the last point was that vinyl sales hit 6.8 million, up from 4.9 million. 
Right. Well, another another point is super fans spend even more. The 18% of fans classified as super fans are increasingly the focus of labels and music marketers because compared to the average U.S. music listener, they spend 68% more money each month on music, 126% more on artist merch, and 76% more on physical music. Yeah, that is a super fan for sure. Yeah, and speaking of super fans, which which we've been talking about a lot, Russ Krupnik uh, from Music Watch wrote this incredible piece where he digs into the data of super fans, Mm -hmm. and we'll cover that in a minute, and we're going to have Russ uh, join us to break that down uh, pretty soon. And then the last one from this piece from Bruce, he said that passionate fan bases are most likely to use community-focused platforms like Discord, and Patreon, 13% of U.S. Gen Z indie rock fans also report a willingness to directly fund an artist via services like Venmo, Cash App, or, or Patreon, making them up 225% more likely to do this than the average U.S. music listener. The genre of music that you make also matters. Right. And the other thing that was really interesting, the three fastest growing music genres were world music. That's up 26 percent. Latin up almost 25 percent and country up almost 24 percent. The comedy, new age and children's genres decline anywhere from between six and 10 percent last year. And you can, of course, download the full Luminate year and music report yeah. uh, with links that are over there on our. Uh, we'll put, in fact, I'll put them in the show notes. Yeah, again. we're about that? we we had it in the newsletter last week. It's if you haven't uh, read it or got it, we we kind of broke it down a little bit last week and talked about how their website was just so interactive and animated and very easy to sort of just glance at and see where the trends are. Um, yeah, for sure. I also wanted to give a shout out to Randy Zimmerman over at Symphonic. She mm-hmm. does a lot with the um, Symphonic blog, and uh, you can get the go to the Symphonic blog. It's it's easy. It's just blog.symphonic.com. And I think we had like three of her pieces in your morning coffee this last week, and then I sent her a little note just to tell her how much we appreciate um, what she does over there. Um, so if you haven't checked out the Symphonic blog, uh, you have to go check that out. Some of the recent stories they've covered. Uh, one was, what is micro-sync licensing? Uh, another one was, th- this was in your morning coffee this week, the best and worst months to release music. Oh, thought yeah, that was nice. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. Music trends to watch in 2024. Um, how releasing music consistently can improve your career. A um, couple more. Um, she wrote this piece, uh, how to find what's trending on TikTok and uh, what to do after being added to a Spotify playlist. And there, there's much, much more, but uh, we're big fans. Uh, we run a lot of that stuff in your morning coffee. Uh, highly recommend you go check out uh, Symphonic's blog. And uh, thank you, Randy. You're killing it. Yeah, that's awesome. Totally awesome. And by the way, I do want to swing, you know, getting back to that Taylor Swift article about her selling more than the genres of jazz and classical. You know, it got me thinking about, of course, you and I used to work for Tower Records. And of course, I was a giant fan of Tower Records. When Tower closed, that was a of genres that that really impacted jazz and classical. Yeah, man. I mean, 100%. that was 
that just went down so much after that. And uh, another reason to kind of really mourn the loss of Tower. But anyway, yeah. let's go on. How about this one? This is a really interesting article. Monetizing music fans, billion dollar opportunity or super fantasy. This is from Russ Krupnik uh, at Music Watch. Uh, and it starts by saying Lucian Grange and Robert Kinsel, leaders of, of course, Universal Music and Warner Music, respectively, received a lot of notice last week for suggesting that music fandom was so sorely under-monetized. Both see squeezing more dollars from music fans as a path to growth. Uh, Kinsel was quoted as saying, we need to develop our direct artist superfan products and experiences. He notes both artists and superfans want deeper relationships and it's an area that's relatively untapped and under-monetized. Now, Russ goes on to say he's correct about the latter. However, consumer research suggests that most fans aren't ready to spend to enhance those relationships. (laughs) Yeah, Music Watch examined several elements of fanship in their soon-to-be-released annual music study. Um, The area is indeed untapped. Looking at 13 to 44-year-olds who listen to or buy music, only 3% purchased a VIP package during 2023. These VIP packages are specially created by artists for fans and could include ticket bundles, exclusives, special release CDs or vinyl, a merch bundle or you know something similar. Only 10% of those fans are interested in tipping, you know, direct to artist payments or crowdfunding for artists. We asked respondents in the annual music study to describe themselves across a series of music-related questions, including likelihood to engage in superfan experiences. So what the data says is that 39% are mostly interested in engaging with artists by listening to their music, whereas only 20% are interested in connecting as superfans. The key to Robert Kinsel's statement is we need to develop. What if 10% of fans aged 13 to 44 bought into a VIP package instead of today's 3%? And what if each of those fans spent $100 each year? That translates to 10 million fans adding 1 billion incremental dollars to the U.S. recorded music industry. And that indeed is super. (laughs) Yeah, it sure is. So check out Russ's full article in your morning coffee. Uh, Check out Music Watch. And stay tuned. He's agreed to come and uh, uh, he's graciously uh, given us some time to break all this stuff down for us. So thank you, Russ. We'll talk soon. And uh, yeah, check it out. Yes. When again, this topic will continue to be brought up all year. It, it is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's and, oh my goodness! Uh, here's another interesting story. Searches for Spotify's day list spiked twenty thousand percent after what? trend took over Instagram. And this is uh, oh my goodness! This is I'm going to mispronounce. Is it is it Deja Tolentino? Is that yeah. The, the, Yeah, at NBC News. Uh, In November, Spotify took over social media feeds with its wrapped deep dive into users' listening habits. Now, its personalized day lists are gaining viral attention online, to say the least. Right. And, you know, we talked about day lists. These day lists are curated playlists based on a user's taste and the music they listen into. Um, The playlist changes, you know, Throughout each day for each user, Spotify reported that, as you mentioned, that 20,000% increase in searches for day lists just in the past week. 
uh, posting the playlist on Instagram stories became a trend in recent days. You know, I've seen a lot of them on X as well. Um, day lists were launched uh, just this last September. You and I talked about it. Right. So just to, 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 re, to remember, the playlists are unique to each user with names such as Romantic C-Sharp Minor Tuesday Morning, <laughs> De Lulu Masterpiece Thursday <laughs> Afternoon, and unique, and unique Friday, I'm sorry, Unique Library Friday Morning. Spotify data has become a popular way for people to show their personalities online in recent years, like Wrapped. Day lists have given people an easy way to show off their hyper-specific tastes. Yeah, and it's really taken off. Um, some people, you know, they, they've taken their day list titles like Overthinking Softy Afternoon or Sad Hopeless Romantic Evening. <laughs> they've, they've, they've sort of been offended by it. So there's some people online that don't really like that. But um, it was a really great piece uh, in NBC about this sudden spike for these day lists. So we'll, we'll be watching this closely. And just so you know, day lists are only available for users of Spotify in the US, Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand, and Ireland. So not all over the world. Not everywhere. Uh, not everywhere. But by the way, Jay, when we, uh, when we do the show, man, we, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And of yes, course, we, we do. have to thank our sponsors. Ah, we really appreciate it, including uh, our friends over at Banzoogle. For over 20 years, Banzoogle has made it easy to build a stunning website and online store for your music. Now they've added a brand new EPK plan so that musicians can create a professional single page electronic press kit in minutes. All the features you need to design an EPK are already built in, including fully customizable templates, preset EPK page layouts, music players, images, text bio and video embeds, a gig calendar and press quotes, and access to Banzoogle's award-winning support team seven days a week. The new EPK plan starts at just $6.95 a month, and your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go over to Banzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days. Then use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEEPK, all one word, to get 10% off the first year of the new EPK plan subscription. That's Banzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEEPK. EPK when you sign up for the EPK plan. Yes, sir. Very cool. We're also brought to you by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It's edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Indeed, Bands in Town, over 80 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform connecting over 590,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yeah, and finally, the Music Business Association. Um, that Music Biz Conference is coming up, and that it really creates the rooms in which important conversations that shape the future of our industry take place. Representing more than 90% of the uh, music industry at large, the uh, Music Business Association serves as the connective tissue for the global music business and provides a trusted forum where ideas and collaboration can flourish. So join us for the Music Biz 2024 Conference, May 13th through the 16th, in Nashville. See you there. Indeed. Big thanks to Banzoogle, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music 
Business Association. And of course, my good friend, Jay Gilbert, music industry consultant, curator of their weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter, and former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Groups, Warner Music Groups. He is the guy that I've gotten to hang out with on a little over 180 episodes of this lovely podcast. And I get to do this show every week with my good friend, Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Group. And before we jump into the stories this week, Mike, um, you and I were talking last week about a story and we mentioned to people, you know, how they can have their sales, like from their website counted and from live shows, you know, typically at live shows, you use uh, an app, you know, at venue to track that. And I made a little mistake about how you report, you know, your Shopify sales. So I got a message from our friend, uh, Tommy Stalnicht, and uh, I'd like to uh, have you hear it from the horse's mouth. So let's listen into uh, a message from uh, Tommy Stalnicht from uh, Single Music. Hey, Jay. Hey, Mike. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, I was listening to the episode the other day. Great job on the vinyl sales reporting portion of it, but I had to prod you a little bit, um, give you a little bit of a a clarification. Uh, Shopify doesn't natively report album sales to Luminate, and uh, Luminate actually recommends using Single to do that because we're actually the only app that does so. Um, We recently just surpassed 11 million albums reported, actually, so it's been going really well over there, too, and it's great to see vinyl's kind of resurgence and growth. This year is definitely going to be really interesting. Um, they're now enabling us to report fan pack sales, and a lot of artists didn't do those last year because we couldn't. So being able to sell a vinyl with a T-shirt is kind of coming back into favor with the charts. So I don't have much data on it yet. Just launched it the other day, so we're really excited to see what happens. We've got one of our first ones we just did uh, the other day, and so we'll have more to report soon. But that and with uh, Spotify increasing their uh, push with the Shopify integration that they have, you're starting to see a lot more sales come through that channel as well, too. So going to be a great year. Loving the show. Really excited to see where Vinyl goes in 24. <laughs> well, there you go. We love it when 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 people correct us because for crying out loud, we're we're only human, Jay. Uh, and right. uh, it's always nice that people are listening. And uh, as I said, we do appreciate it to uh, to be corrected. Yeah, very cool. Thank you, Tommy. We we really appreciate that. Uh, so yeah, so much going on this week. So you know. Um, let's let's dive right in we've already talked about you know patrick clifton you know breaking down the record label crisis um but the next story i thought was really interesting and it's it's a really long read so we'll just sort of give you the highlights and it was from the wall street journal and the headline really jumped out spotify dominates audio streaming but where are the profits Yeah, the company has expanded beyond music to stay ahead, but has struggled to make money. And, uh, you know, it's it's the the article. This is by Ann Steele, by the way. It says Spotify has a plum position in the audio streaming business. It's the leading platform with some 600 million users. It's 30 percent market share is twice that of the next largest competitor. Spotify is adding millions of new subscribers a month and few of its users cancel. Yeah. Seems like a great story. It says most companies can only dream of that kind of industry dominance, yet not even the leading audio streaming company has consistently made money 
off of audio streaming. While customers love the convenience of streaming, the question remains whether companies in either audio or video can translate that love to big profits? Yeah, that's the question, right? That's the challenge. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a few stats uh, from this article that I think will kind of put things in perspective. So Spotify has over 600 million users and a 30% market share, and that's twice that of its next largest competitor. Spotify pays music labels nearly 70 cents for every dollar it earns from music streaming. Yet not even Spotify, the leading company, they haven't consistently made money off of audio streaming. Which is just, you know, I still find this stunning. And it's sort of a, a, a conversation that you and I started, you know, which is which I think about, which is what is a realistic expectation of profitability for a company like Spotify? Right. You know, when you look at grocery stores, let's say they, they operate on a profit margin of like five to 10%. And obviously Spotify is paying labels roughly 70% of what they get for, to license the material. I, 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 at the risk of be, I'm not trying to be a smart ass, but it's like, that seems like a pretty solid profit margin. If you manage your spending and if you manage your infrastructure costs and all of that stuff, I, I don't know. Am I, am I off base on that? Is, well, is it, we'll have to talk to some experts about it, but I, I hear what you're saying. And I, and I totally agree that other businesses operate on less uh, and, and there's some other things that they pay, which we can get into, but they've been trying to do some things recently that we've been talking about, like they spent like a billion dollars to get into podcasting in mm -hmm. a big way, you know, um, they're, they're really two years late in rolling out their lossless audio. You know, I'm not sure that that's going to save them. You know, we've talked a little bit about how audiobooks have been a new initiative and listen, mm -hmm. we're not bashing Spotify. They've been super innovative you know, in, in a lot of this, but I wanted to touch on one point that they make here and that, and it's a quote from Richard Kramer and Richard is the co-host of bubble trouble, that podcast with Will Page mm -hmm. that we love so much. And by the way, he's agreed to talk to me this week for the podcast next week. So put a pin in that. So this is a quote from Richard Kramer. He said, Spotify has consistently led people to believe that they would have a profitable business that would justify their valuation and used capital raised on the back of that valuation to chase rainbows, right? But according to Richard Kramer, none of those rainbows were captured. Yeah, that's a great line, actually. Well, and you and I have talked about this a lot. And it says, of course, the, the company has a market cap of nearly $40 billion, uh, but they compete with deep-pocketed behemoths, including Apple, Amazon, and Google, as we've talked about many times, that don't have to rely on profits from streaming audio. So in that sense, Spotify really is truly a, a singleton amongst other audio streamers in terms of, of their reality with how they actually have to become profitable and, right. and everything like that. They don't have those other businesses to support this business. That's right. That's exactly right. And it's a beast. You know, they've had a lot of like years of rapid growth, but recently, as we've sort of uh, talked about, the company laid off around 2,300 employees in three rounds of cuts in, in this last year as they tried to, you know, obtain that profitability, the most recent cut, you know, was 17% of its remaining mm -hmm. workforce. And then as you and I talked about last week, 
their stock price rose after those cuts. Oh, I know. That's just so depressing when you right. see that. It says, executives say the company has made progress transforming from a music streaming service to an audio company and that its recent push into audiobooks coupled with podcasts and music streaming will bring sustained profits in 2024. It's the only service that offers streaming music podcasts and hours of audiobook listening in the same app. For ten ninety nine, uh, bullish investors say making it dis- make, making it distinctive from its rivals. So that's interesting. Yeah, it really is. Um, they continue to innovate. Um, they continue to be the industry leader. But you know, to this article's uh, main point, it it hasn't translated into profitability. So you know, there's there's other companies that are trying to, you know, obtain this profitability or at least more profitability, you know, services like Google, Apple, Amazon, they've sort of joined in and Spotify found itself in a race to attract a growing number of streamers. Um, so it, they're, they're growing, the, the pace has slowed down on that growth mm-hmm. and they're really trying to look at other areas within the business, like you just mentioned, you know, they want to become this quote unquote audio company, right? We talked about audiobooks and we talked about, you know, uh, podcasts and, and some of these things. And it's just not clear if that, that is the path. And now we're going to be getting into this new era of AI where this functional music, for example, that we've been talking about is starting to flood the market. And to your point in that last story, when you have tens of millions of tracks that have never been played, not even once, you know, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, it is. And, you know, and I mean, listen, I, I, I do tip my hat. They have been very adventurous and, and creative in trying to, to do new, new angles to what is, let's call it an audio business. Uh, but again, you know, when you're talking about audiobooks, let's say it's the same thing. You're, you're essentially licensing these from other people and you're, it's this, it's a similar margin in terms of profitability. So, you know, will that be their, their kind of savior moving forward? I don't, I don't really know. Um, and what do you think about just, the high fidelity stuff? Cause you know that world as well as anybody yeah. I know. And as much as you and I love it, it's never really been a big market, a, you know, a big business. It's still sort of niche. I hate saying that because I love, no, I, I love, it. you know, Sony 360 and Dolby Atmos and I love Cobas and I love lossless sound. And you and I both love great quality audio, but it, that's, I haven't seen that for the masses yet, or I haven't seen them adopt it. No. N- n- yeah. And, and I think it's, it is, again, it is, it, it is a smaller market than one would expect. Unfortunately, you know, I, I mean, I think listening to uh, listening to music in the highest fidelity possible, and again, and, and listening to things in immersive music are fantastic. But again, that is that is a smaller market, and it's always going to be that. Unfortunately, yeah. um, I don't know, you know. So it's interesting to see, and the and the article does mention that you know it's possible at some point Spotify might be taken over by another larger company. So. Um, you know, I mean, they, they're hustling, they're trying, but I, it still seems like certainly out of the gate. And of course they, a lot of their, uh, early, you know, going back, let's say five years when interest rates were much lower, they were spending a lot of money on, on stuff. They had lovely offices. They, they had lots of employees and I think probably out of the gate, they went a little crazy, maybe crazier than they should have on, on those sort of things. And, 
I don't know, you know, how do you, how do you trim back to, to levels that it should be? It's, it can be very painful. And when you, again, when you're talking about laying off the, the, the percentage of workforce that they've already laid off, man, that hurts and yeah. that doesn't look good. But then again, it, their stock price went up when they did that. So yeah, we'll, we'll be see watching it, it closely, but before we yeah. move on to the next story, you know, just kudos to Ann Steele and wall street journal. Mm-hmm. It was a great piece, but there was one correction that came out well after uh, the article came out and I posted it in your morning coffee. And I just want to read that correction really quickly. Um, it was Ann Steele said that Spotify pays music labels and other rights holders nearly 70 cents of every dollar it earns from music streaming, which is its core business. Mm-hmm. And that's similar to other st- uh, services, right? Other DSPs. An earlier version of this article, which is the one we reported on, said that it pays music labels nearly 70 cents of every dollar it earns from music streaming. So it's just a, a little, you know, a slight correction there, but I wanted to put that in there. But uh, again, great piece. Great piece. Really, really interesting and worth going back and reading. It's, it's, it's very long and dense, but it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, this is, uh, they are certainly the market leader in terms of innovation. Um, but like we said, you know, they've, it's, it's, it's music or nothing for them. And, and uh, it's, they are unique in that respect. That's right. It sure is. Let's jump over to our next story, Jay. It is from Bloomberg. The music industry needs a new growth story. Yeah, this is by Lucas Shaw um, over at Bloomberg. And I thought this was interesting because there were a lot of uh, layoffs in the news in the last couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, Lucas points out that more than a dozen major corporations across technology, finance, and media announced major job cuts, including Amazon, Alphabet, a software company called Unity Software, Universal Music Group. Uh, which is the world's largest music company. Um, And they talked about their planned cuts for Q1 this year. Also, animation studio Pixar will let uh, some staff go in the second half. So all told, media companies have let go more than 70,000 employees since the start of last year. Wow. Oh, God. Brutal. Yeah, it is brutal. Uh, As they said, not all of these are for the same reasons. Unity overhired during the metaverse hype cycle. Alphabet is focusing its attention on artificial intelligence. Amazon's live streaming site Twitch still loses a lot of money. So does its Hollywood studio, which also has lots of extra staff following the acquisition of of MGM. So there's a lot of things that kind of contributed to this, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, uh, Bloomberg's so good at diving into the financial sides of these things. And they list sort of five things um, that you need to know. Um, I'll take the first couple. One is that Microsoft just surpassed Apple as the most valuable company in the world. Number two is that Warner Brothers sold 22 million copies of Hogwarts Legacy, which made it the best-selling video game of the year. Yeah. Uh, also interesting, it says the NFL increased its TV ratings across every major window. The league also explained why it put a playoff game only on Peacock. That was surprising, interesting. Um, ESPN's move into gambling is off to a good start. Oh, my God. And that is something that I've noticed just tangentially. 
how how sports is becoming so ingrained with gambling. It's unbelievable. Uh, the director of Parasite has called for an investigation of South Korean tabloids after the apparent suicide of one of the movie's stars. Yeah, yeah. and a couple of points there really quickly. One is I was reading this piece about uh, NFL Sunday Night Football in, in the New York Times, and that like, you know, nine of the 10 top shows last year were Sunday night football. I mean, it's just a, a beast. And then I was one of those people that was a little miffed that, you know, you couldn't watch that playoff game unless yeah. you subscribed to, to Peacock. Peacock. Okay. Well, that's, that's a new turn uh, for the NFL. So we'll have to yeah. see how that, uh, but getting back to sort of the music uh, side that, you know, they point out that, like the headline of the story, the music industry needs a new growth story. You know, so for the last several years, Universal Music Group uh, CEO, Lucian Grange, has gathered hundreds of music industry heavyweights on the Saturday before the Grammys, you know, to sort of do a presentation and tout his company, company's rising stars. So acts from across the Universal family play a few songs for technology executives, advertisers, and the press. So past participants include Migos, Maggie Rogers, and Steven Sanchez. The star-studded event is a showcase for rising talent, but it has doubled as a testament to Grange's power and a declaration that the music industry, once crippled by piracy, is again flush. Yeah, but Universal skipping that showcase, the, that party this year, opting for a slimmed-down affair tailored to brands. The optics of throwing such a lavish affair aren't great when you're about to fire hundreds of employees. You know, the largest, yeah. what they're calling a bloodletting at the company since it went public uh, a couple of years ago. Now, the cuts, which the company quasi-confirmed after uh, this January 12th story, will occur in the first quarter of the first year as part of a larger restructuring. There are a lot of rumors about what that will entail, most of them unsubstantiated so far. Uh, She says, we know this will require labels to share more services and resources, but not the outright consolidation of some labels. Yeah, Lucian Grange told his colleagues that, quote, UMG is the most successful company in the history of the music business, end quote. And so they asked the question, you know, so why is such a successful company firing so many employees? I mean, the streaming boom uh, has started to slow. That could be one reason. Uh, While Universal is still growing, um, its sales increases uh, increased just 3% in the third quarter. So year over year, its sales growth has slowed five quarters in a row. And they have a chart in this article that shows you um, at a glance how it slowed down. And if you adjust for currency fluctuations, growth in 2023 was about half of what it was the prior year in 2022. It's, it's better, but it's slowing down. Right. As we all know, investors in public companies don't like slowing growth, and Grange has to answer to those investors since he took the company public back in 2021. And those investors include hedge fund billionaire Bill Ackman, the the Bolor family, and an affiliate of China's largest music company, Tencent Music Entertainment. Yeah, it's a little depressing, uh, but it's interesting. Um, I'll just, the last thing I'll say about this article, it was was so well-written. Um, a lot of the things that they're talking about, you know, the, what they're calling the looming threat of artificial intelligence, uh, for example, you know, what happens when things like this happen? Well, they fire staff, right? I mean, Warner Music Group already fired staff last year. And, and what else do they do? They raise prices. Or in the case of a record label, you ask streaming services to raise their prices. So investors seem to like what they see. 
Um, as we mentioned, Universal Music Group shares were up 15% over the last year uh, on the news of the job cuts. So again, we'll follow this really closely. Uh, great piece in uh, Bloomberg uh, from Lucas Shaw and a, a great quote from Richard Kramer. And watch uh, for the show next week and we get a chance to uh, talk to Richard. And on that note, well, we got to wrap up the show, Jay. It's been a wonderful time on a rainy Saturday. And uh, we want to thank our sponsors. Of course, we could not do the show without the wonderful folks that bring us to the party every week. Banzoogle, Hypebot, Banzantown, and the Music Business Association. And if you do like our show, please tell one friend. Certainly, Jay and I would appreciate that. And on that note, thanks for listening in. It's been episode 180 of the podcast. And Jay and I will be back next week on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.